This programming is sponsored by the Dan L. Duncan Comprehensive Cancer Care Center at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center, offering comprehensive cancer care that is compassionate, personalized, and driven by clinical research. More at stlukeshealth.org cancer. This is Houston Matters. I'm Craig Cohen. Good morning. Coming up, why the organizers of a summit in Houston this week call the I-10 Corridor the premier observatory for the future. Also, the battle over who pays for drugs designed to prevent HIV and a chat about comic strip art at Rice. We begin with the newest COVID subvariant, though, XBB15. It's quickly becoming the dominant strain throughout the country. The CDC says it accounts for some 40 percent of COVID infections nationwide, and health experts say it appears more transmissible than previous strains. To walk through what we know about it, we're joined now by News 887's Matt Harab. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Craig. XBB15. They are starting to sound like Star Wars droids. <laughs> that is true. Well, Jared and I were having a conversation this morning. Why don't they just name them like hurricanes? You know, oh, just you them names. Um, so th- this strain is is not the dominant strain in Houston. Let's make that clear. I did check with the Houston Health Department yesterday, and that is accounting right now for 70 percent of the cases in the Northeast, according to the New York Times. Uh, that's in the Northeast. So typically what happens is when the, we follow what happens in the Northeast. That has been the, the history of the pandemic. Um, but this variant, it's health experts say, as you said, it's more transmissible. It's quickly become the dominant variant across most of the, some parts of the country. Case counts with the new variant have risen around the country drastically, according to the New York Times. The new variant accounted for barely 2% of U.S. cases at the start of December. And as of right now, according to The New York Times, it accounts for more than 27 percent of the total U.S. cases through the first week of January. What do we know about its spread here in Houston? Well, the Houston Health Department, again, uh, confirmed to me it's not the dominant strain here right now, but it is very prevalent. It's out there. And we know this based on the latest wastewater report released late yesterday by the city. I actually just looked it up uh, before coming in here, Craig. And the amount of COVID-19 currently in the wastewater, according to the Houston Health Department's report yesterday, is 10 times times above the baseline level set back in 2020, um, which it was nine times above the baseline level set back in 2020 in the middle of December. So not a huge increase from the last report, but still what this shows is that it's still very, very prevalent and out there. And let me just briefly touch on what this means when we talk about baseline levels. We're talking about the peak numbers when this was still a novel virus. There were no vaccines or no treatments out there back in 2020. Um, So to cause a steep rise like this in the in the amount of virus in the city's wastewater, it's obviously causing a disturbance and causing case counts to rise. Positivity rates now over 50, um, over 15 percent. And hospitalizations were rising leading into the holidays and gradually rising here, um, but not to the level that it was back in 2020. Anything else that local health experts are saying about this newest strain? They are saying, um, according to Dr. Janina White, the Houston Health Department, um, they did last week a COVID talk. The city is still doing these COVID talks. And on the latest episode, she did mention that this does have evidence that vaccines are are not as effective against this current variant. Having said that, it's not as deadly. 
Um, she made very clear to have both of those points um, said. So, yes, there are more cases, there are more hospitalizations, but not rising as fast as it once was during the course of the pandemic. And this variant, more transmissible, not as deadly. Though. And at least not yet as uh, significant as uh, northeastern United States. Is Correct. Seventy percent of the cases over there, that's not the case here. Our colleagues at Town Square will have more on this newest COVID subvariant later today. Also updates on flu and RSV going around uh, this time of year. That's at 3 o'clock today on News 88.7. Matt Harrop, thank you very much. You're welcome. The Premier Observatory for the Future, that's what organizers of a summit in Houston this week call the I-10 Corridor. From energy and commerce to land use, equity, risk and beyond, we can apparently learn a lot from what happens along that highway and in communities uh, along that highway and near it. That's at least the premise of the 10 Across organization and summit. Wellington Duke Ryder is the executive director and founder of 10 Across. He joins us now. Duke, good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much. So what exactly is the mission of the 10 Across initiative? Well, it's based on an observation, as you mentioned, that if you were to look at a corridor or transect across the United States and try to understand the future, you couldn't do better than the I-10 corridor. It runs through the most extreme examples of issues related to energy. Obviously, here in Houston, that's a big deal, but also water clearly too little in the West, sometimes too much in the East, in the Gulf area, and a variety of other issues. So we just think it makes a lot of sense to look closely at the southern tier of the United States where people are moving and a place that finds itself on the front edges of climate change. Couldn't you find that uh, along a long stretch of any interstate highway across the United States? You really couldn't. Uh, you clearly want to go horizontally. or uh, You don't want to go north-south where climate can be very different uh, seasonally. And also this quarter runs through the three largest states in the union. Uh, so California, Texas, and Florida. I think each maybe with governors who imagine themselves in the next president. That's 30% of the House of Representatives, the energy capital of the world here in Houston, three of the five largest cities, L.A., Phoenix, and Houston. And this is, again, where people are moving and change uh, on every dimension is afoot. So we think this is a unique quarter. And it's not just about the highway. It's really about this area. So what are the some of the topics uh, up for discussion at this year's summit? So at this year's summit, we will begin with how to think big. And we used to have uh, more of a tradition in this country of thinking at scale, at the scale of country, something that's a little bit more difficult in these challenging political times. We will definitely talk about energy. How could you not here in Houston and an energy transition that simply must happen? And we're talking to many Houstonians and, and people in the industry who believe the same. Water will be a big topic given the incredible drought in the desert southwest where I'm coming from, but also how you manage water in places that are on the coast, like Houston, New Orleans, and, and others that are managing sea level rise. We'll talk a bit about heat because uh, this is a part of the country that is going to be experiencing rising temperatures, and that has implications for the economy, for workers, for health. Uh, and then finally, we'll talk about journalism. How do you report these complex stories in a way that really causes the public to take notice and uh, feel the sense of urgency that we think is necessary? And who's taking part in this summit? You will have uh, topic experts in the areas that I just described. Uh, Mayor Turner 
will be one of our speakers on Thursday morning. The new president uh, of Rice University, uh, Reggie DeRoches, will speaking, be speaking with us tomorrow. Uh, tonight, Bobby Tudor, well-known Houstonian related to the energy industry. And in between, a variety of authors, uh, as I mentioned, topic experts and journalists who've been looking at all of these issues. You, of course, alluded to energy a couple of times, and, and that's a, a big part, I'm sure, to the answer to, to my next question. But, but why is Houston, uh, in, in your mind, an ideal location for a, a meeting like this? You know, there's several books out there, as well as essays about Houston as representative of where the future of the country is going. Uh, I'm thinking of Stephen Kleinberg's book. So Houston is sort of representative of Ten Across as a whole. It's a place that's growing just like Phoenix is growing and other cities in the southern tier of the U.S. It's more diverse than it ever has been and will continue to be so. And uh, yes, you mentioned energy. And of course, we associate that with Houston. And if there is going to be the transition in the way that we generate energy and through what means, what better place than to talk about that than in the energy capital of the world? Environmental justice expert Dr. Robert Bullard from Texas Southern University will take part in this week's summit. He will uh, also be on Town Square on Wednesday at 3 o'clock. Duke Ryder is the executive director and founder of Ten Across. Duke, thanks very much. Happy to be with you. And up next, what's behind a battle over who pays for pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV or PrEP? It's a drug regimen designed to prevent high-risk people from acquiring HIV. Stay with us as Houston Matters continues. This is Houston Matters. I'm Craig Cohen. There has been a battle lately between health insurance companies and patients and between political opponents in courtrooms over who pays for pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV or PrEP, a drug regimen designed to prevent high-risk people from acquiring the disease. The Affordable Care Act says patients shouldn't have to pay for it, but some insurers are charging anyway. They may be seeking cover from a Texas judge's ruling last September that the Affordable Care Act's mandate to cover the full cost of preventive care PrEP included is unconstitutional. Anthony Cantu works at a San Antonio health clinic where he counsels patients about PrEP. He takes the medication too. Anthony, good morning. Good morning, Craig. When did you first begin using PrEP? So I began using PrEP in July of 2021. And were you under the impression at the time that your insurer, which I understand is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, would cover it? Correct. I was uh, under the impression uh, that there was the uh, Affordable Care Act provision that meant that any um, lab work or any of the care associated with accessing PrEP was completely covered at no cost to me. And when did you find out, at least according to Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, that wasn't the case? It was around uh, December, maybe, that I received uh, two bills that were almost uh, $500 collectively. And is that something you could uh, afford to keep paying for if your insurer won't? Absolutely not. Um, it was it was extremely stressful. I'm a college student. I've been paying out of pocket for um, for tuition, and I've worked in, in, in nonprofit, so I don't make a ton of money. And it certainly would have been something that, like initially, my reaction was like, I I can't continue with this, and and I sent a, an email to to my doctor. Uh, with something to that effect. 
And did you hear any response from your doctor or, for that matter, from your insurer? Well, I called the insurer. Uh, the doctor did uh, reinforce that um, it should be completely covered by the uh, my insurance company. And so when I called Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, I spoke with one representative who told me I would have to go into the patient portal and I myself would have to provide some sort of appeal for these charges. And so really um, what happened was that it set me on like this like seven page long Google quest to find how I could cite this ACA uh, legislation so that I wouldn't be charged. And uh, ultimately, um, as I mentioned, I was like on page seven and I was frustrated. And that's when I found this like um, contact information for the HIV Hepatitis Policy Institute. And I found an email and it was just like a Hail Mary. I just, you know, sent this email to them explaining what was going on. And what was the, the, was there any resolution at that point? So at that point, I was um, pleasantly surprised. I was contacted by Amy, who um, is an attorney who I believe works with the the Policy Institute. And um, so she explained to me what was going on and um, that we would be filing a a formal complaint with the Texas Department of Insurance, which we uh, successfully submitted in the end of January of 2022. And has there been any resolution since? So in February of 2022, we received a resolution letter that the charges had been reversed. And um, Amy and I were really pushing to have this change on a macro level to where nobody in Texas who has Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas would experience this with any of their plans while accessing or attempting to access PrEP. And um, so we received a resolution letter from the Texas Department of Insurance and from Blue Cross Blue Shield that there had been these uh, policy implementations that would um, make PrEP completely um, at no cost to uh, the consumers uh, who had the plan that I have and that my charges had been reversed. Uh, as throughout, oh, go ahead. Uh, throughout the course of, um, of, of that time, I still continued to receive uh, collection attempts. I mentioned you work at a health clinic in San Antonio. Are are you hearing from uh, any of the patients there, uh, anybody that visits that clinic, uh, that they're facing similar situations? Well, I had heard from a couple of patients that had transferred to us, uh, but I think our the clinic I work at is a little bit different because we don't bill for our lab work. All Got of it. our medical services are completely free, so we hadn't encountered it. Anthony Cantu, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And joining us now is Carl Schmidt, Executive Director of the HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute. Carl, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Uh, Why are insurers like uh, Blue Cross not covering costs uh, related to PrEP prescriptions, or at least making it difficult to get reimbursed for them? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's first of all, we have to acknowledge the uh, remarkable drugs that are out there. You know, we we can end HIV and, you know, we've always had drugs that we could treat people, but now we can actually have drugs that 
prevent HIV. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act, they should be covered without uh, any cost to uh, patients. And uh, this has been in effect for a couple of years now. So the insurers have had time to get their act together and uh, make sure that these billing problems don't occur. But we're not only hearing from people from Texas, but around the country as well, that they're still encountering problems. And, and um, you know, it, it's really, we, we have to get rid of barriers because if people want to be on PrEP, there's a reason. And uh, we need to make sure that it's as easy as possible. So, you know, it, it takes courageous people like Anthony to come forward. And thank God he found us. And, the, um, and hopefully his case has been resolved. But the insurers need to get their act together. They need to make sure their billing codes are proper. The providers need help with that as well. There seems to be a lack of communication between providers and the insurers. And um, it just can't be this difficult for people. And, you know, especially, you know, we're seeing more and more cases amongst Latinos, amongst uh, African-Americans, lower income people, and they're not accessing PrEP. And we need to make it easier for them. I, I know you brought up the Braywood case earlier that's happening in Texas. Yeah, and that let me, let me give a little bit. With this. Well, 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 hold on a second, because I, I wonder if it does. In September, a Texas judge found that the Affordable Care Act's mandate to cover the full cost of preventive care may be unconstitutional. That could include PrEP, could it not? Yeah, I mean, that, that is the um, basis for this case. It, it is a very specific, a very remote uh, case at the moment, it, it, and it hasn't even been decided yet, and then it would be appealed, and we expect to be involved in that case um, as well. But I don't think that this there's any, um, you know, motives against PrEP um, by the uh, insurers. I certainly hope that's not the case. And, uh, you know, we've uh, some senators recently wrote a letter to the association that represents all the insurance companies, and they responded in saying that they support PrEP and, uh, and the law, and uh, they want to make sure it works. And uh, so I don't think this has anything to do with it, but that is an important case that we have to follow and that we have to fight. Why then uh, do we see some instances of patients being told, uh, no, their insurance won't cover that? I think a lot of it has to do with uh, just a lack of knowledge and uh, by insurance uh, departments, by uh, specific um, uh, insurance companies and staff. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, we have the drug and, uh, and uh, then there's the associated lab services. When you're on PrEP, you have to get ongoing uh, lab tests and doctor visits. It takes a prescription. And I think a lot of uh, insurers are not aware of all those things. So we need additional education, additional, uh, you know, work with the, the labs, uh, the major lab companies to make sure that providers are, are putting in the right codes when they uh, provide uh, prescribed PrEP uh, to their patients. That's one of the problems that Anthony um, uh, uh, encountered, and it took months and months and months to find that out. Meanwhile, they kept on billing him, going to collection agencies. Uh, and, and that, you know, so we still have some hurdles. I don't think there's a, I certainly hope that there is not a negative, uh, you know, connection to uh, the need for PrEP. 
which you know is 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 needed by many many people. We estimate around over a million people in the United States uh, can access should be accessing PrEP. Carl Schmidt is executive director of the HIV and Hepatitis Policy Institute. Carl, thank you very much. Thank you. And just ahead, conversations in a Houston area barbershop. Stick around as Houston Matters continues. This is Houston Matters. I'm Craig Cohen. For years, barbershops and hair salons have played a special role in the lives of African Americans. Black men in particular view barbershops as more than just places for hair care services, but also as safe havens where they can talk candidly about anything from sports to politics. To learn more about the role barbershops play in the lives of African American men in the latest edition of ICU, host Eddie Robinson visited one such spot here in Houston, Ken's Cutting Shop near NRG Stadium, where he spoke with owner Ken Hicks and patrons getting their hair cut. Hicks tells him barbershops are special because relationships are built there. I want everybody to feel like they're at home, be relaxed, and they come in and talk, laugh, joke, cry, and do everything we need to do while getting a haircut. It's interesting because when you go to a barbershop, it's more than just getting your hair fixed and, and getting what you need to be done to your hair. And, and But it's it's an identity thing as well. That's you know, great. when you look at your appearance and that matters, especially right. in our culture. That's right. What is it about this almost religious look at making sure that we get our appointment? Because I look at my mom and she's like, her Thursday morning, 8 o'clock <laughs> appointments are not to be missed. That's right. And it's almost as if it's like survival, you know, That's with right. her hair. I mean, and That's if you correct. change it, if you move it, if you disrupt it, watch out. Right. Be careful. Well, I got a story for you. <laughs> it's one of your frat brothers. Oh. <laughs> Dr. James Ward. Yes, Dr. Ward. A professor at TSU. Yes. The provost. Love him. Dr. Ward is a living example of an icon customer. Let me tell you why. He came to me. Dr. Ward had an enlarged kidney, Mm. right? He's now, you know, on dialysis and everything. He's doing well. The doctors, they wrote him off, said he might not make it, but he bounced back. But while he was in the hospital, Eddie, barely could talk, barely could walk, but he wanted his hair cut. So I used to come to the hospital to cut his hair because it's a long time, client. I've been cutting him since the 90s. I cut his hair. He said, Ken, I just got to tell you one thing. You give me healing. You know, just getting his hair cut made him feel good. You know, and that really brought tears to my eyes because that was special. And he's just a every week normal client. He talked to me every week about it. He said, Ken, you know, I went through all this in the hospital. It was the time I was cutting his hair, Eddie. He couldn't move. I couldn't cut the back of his hair. He laid there. But he said once he got his hair cut, he felt good. And that made me feel good. So after that, I said, if Dr. Ward can do it, I can make anybody feel good. And he was super sick, Eddie. I'm talking about real sick, but hey, he come every week. He said, Ken, if it went for my haircuts, I really think you saved me. And that made me feel good. Dr. Ward, you're here with us. Tell us more about what it's been like for you to be a customer here at Ken's Cutting. Well, I've been coming probably 20, 21 years. Wow. 
And now my appointment is every Thursday at 10.30. I get here at 10 o'clock because I want to hear the whatever is going on. And then when I'm, when I'm, but, but I have to be gone at a certain time. So what you do is, I know that the media is a monster yes. when it comes to reporting our people. But all they need to do is come to the barber shop and see all these fathers mm-hmm. with their son. It's like therapy there when you go. go there. And the people here will see about you. They'll ask you, are you all right? Yeah. And, you know, Ken will tell you, well, I'm not supposed to say this. I know you won't tell it. But I said, he's gossiping. <laughs> <laughs> That's gossip. And, and it, has been, it has meant a lot to me. Dr. Ward, you said a word, therapy. And we talked to Ken, and he also mentioned the word healing. Talk to us more about what that experience feels like when you walk into a barbershop, because not many people realize the mental capacity and the mental issues and the strain that a lot of black men continue to go through to this very day. And they look forward to those moments of being inside a barbershop. Well, I was really, really ill. I mean, sick to the point that I couldn't even walk. So Ken would come to the hospital and cut my hair. I mean, I, and, and I started feeling better. I mean, I, I started feeling better. And then uh, when I was able to walk, uh, I came to the barbershop and people would help you feel better. And they would say, I'm glad you're feeling better. You're up and ready. Ken told us how you were sick you. I said, oh, he told all my business. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. But, but, exactly. But what I'm saying is there are entities that will help you thrive and help yes. you get up, that will that you know that you're doing better. And, and so that was one of the things that helped me to get through it. And because I know I would, uh, they had me in a wheelchair at one time, and I threw the wheelchair away. Nice. You have to throw those things that you become dependent on. And I, I know the young people would tell me, said, you better get out of that bed. The bed will make you dead. <laughs> and so this was part of my healing because the energy was always right in here. Because if the energy were not right, I wouldn't come to it. Because I don't go to dark places. I, I, I don't do it. So, so that's, that's what it has meant to me in terms of my own healing. Because I was around people in here who wanted me to get better. And it wasn't just something they say, I hope you get. They really wanted me to get better. Yeah. This is Mickey McGill. I've been going to Ken for like 31, 32 years. Since wow. I was about 16 years old in high school. Wow. So. He literally has seen me grow up, right? When I come back to Houston after, after college, it's my first stop. He's my get right man. <laughs> That's what it said. When I got proms, I got to go to events. It's where I go. And so your barber is also the connector. You have all type of people that come in. And when I became a financial advisor, Ken was the first one lining up, right? Let me help out. Let me, let me take care of you. When I started working with NFL players five years ago, he was like, oh, let me introduce you to somebody. When my roof was leaking, he was like, I got a guy. Let me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, whenever you need something, exactly. you call the barber. It is, 
<laughs> get the hookup. And it's and the crazy thing is it's and it's so well known that even my wife was like, Did you call Ken? <laughs> you ain't call him yet. You need to call him, right? right? He's come by the house, it's like you need to do this and this and this. This is the safe spot, right? It's where everybody can come together and take care of each other. Something that happens in the black community is that, you know, a lot of times we don't protect ourselves. We don't take advice. We don't look out for each other. But here in the barbershop, that's the power of it, right? You can come in and a guy that you don't know, you strike up a conversation with, and now you're able to do some business, take care of each other, help out someone's mom, right? I mean, my mom has had a lot of health issues, right? Yes. Ken's been there down the street she needs something let me know wherever i need something this is where i go that's the power of the barbershop the barbershop isn't just in this in this cocoon it's something that we all have and it's a community in this one place uh my name is uh kenneth davidson i've only had uh two barbers in my entire life and one of them was my godfather back in shreveport and the other one's been uh ken he's been cutting my hair now for for 28 years, and um, my story is a little bit different uh, with Ken. Um, when he started cutting my hair, we got close. You know, I was in his wedding. We've done some things together that we would keep to ourselves. And, and now he's like my son's best friend. He talked to him, and my son has had conversations. And I'm not even aware that they'd had they've had conversations. You know, and I played professional football for nine years. And once my career ended, it was like that. These guys, Derek and Ken, don't know that they were like therapy for me. Because once that career ended, it's like, okay, what now? They would tell you, I was treating it like a job. I would show up when they showed up and just would sit around all day just to talk until I could kind of find my way and what I was going to do next. He's like an extension of my family. He, he is family to me. He really is. My, my son calls him Uncle Ken. They both like foods. My son follows him on Instagram. I mean, if I need anything done around the house, call Ken because he knows somebody. When I come to the barbershop, it was like, it's like an outlet for me. My wife, what are you, do? what are you doing so long? But now she understands that my son is old enough. He comes with me. You know, even when she comes in here to bring him, if I'm out of town or unavailable, whatever, she's close to Ken. For me, it's, it's like a family environment. It really, 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 really is. You know, and I come in now on Saturdays and, you know, when I sit down, it's already understood. <laughs> Derek going to give me a minute, but he gonna, <laughs> he want he want the dose of what's going to happen with the Texans, what's going on, such, 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 such. And, you know, I kind of tell him the ins and outs about the – football that he don't that he was unaware of and he was like man I guess I'm like a I guess a modern day bookie or whatever just getting inside information and you meet some of everybody and all different people always alive you know come here you got your you know your Dr. Ward still are college professionals and you got the guy average guy that may drive a trash truck but when we come here it's like everybody family yeah, you know, I've been with him when he cut Steve Harvey hair. He's cut some celebs, you know, hair, and I mean, now he got all the plug with the Texans and such and such and such. But he, Ken, has made this barber thing out of well life. I'm very, very, very proud of him, of his entrepreneurship yes. with his barbershop.
He is a true, true blessing to my son's life, blessing to my life, my wife's life. And honestly, I don't know what I would do without him. It's just, it's just understood. My mom knows him. And she doesn't even live here. She lives in Shreveport. You know, tell Ken I say hello, yeah. you know. You know, and I was sick a couple of times. He done came to my house, cut my hair. You know, it just, it's amazing, man. I'm Kevin Cooper. I've been coming to Ken since he was at Miss Pat's over on Dallin. That's, that's, that's where it was. But, but what it is that we're really tap-toeing around, Ken is a businessman. And if you start to look at the economics of the black community, of which we spend $1.7 trillion in the economy, but we spend 2% of it with each other. One percent of which goes to people doing our hair. So what happens is, is that this man becomes a a, a a bit of an inspiration. I bring my son here. We don't go anywhere else. I mean, he got his first haircut right on the other side of the wall. You know, when I was in high school, one of the greatest and most powerful quotes I ever heard of, it said, to whom you give your money is to whom you give your power. And the fact that we come in here and we talk about one of my goals in business is how can we go from 2% to 30%, right? And if we spent 30% of our $1.7 trillion with each other, we're going to be in a much better place than 2%. Well, what is it, where does the start of the 2% start at? It starts with getting our hair cut. So as we can go and start to branch out and you understand what your dollar goes to, Ken's cutting hair. I mean, Ken's giving other people an opportunity to have a safe place to start their own business. And where's that safe place? Because who's in here to regulate what we talk about? People, I know when I work at the Texans, you have to, what do we do? Code switching, being quiet, hey, hey, here you come, here you come. Just, you know, you, you, you have the ability to be your, your most authentic self, and that's what this is about. That's right. You know, one, one of the things I don't pride myself on, I don't, I don't go to therapy. I think that more black people probably do need to go to therapy. Well, I paid Ken $20 every two weeks to get, his, get a little bit of therapy. You know, he, he ain't born certified, but, you know, you have the ability to sit and connect with somebody else that's gone through the same thing that we've gone through or, again, man, somebody's trying to sit and give you some game and sit and say, hey, like, this is what, this may be what you need to do. I mean, what, you get in here and we just start talking about topics that go on and, like, you know, I, got, I have my son here. You know, it, it was, how do you deal with a lady? He's 10. You know, well, where's he going to learn that from? Yes. Well, I would much rather him learn from other black men that are around as opposed to, Learning it from another 10-year-old that don't know how to pee straight, you know, at least this gives you the ability to, to connect with people, you know, that are like-minded. Because, again, we're going to spend our time in our safe place. And this right here is where we're all safe. That was Kevin Cooper, one of the patrons at Ken's Cutting Shop, who spoke with Eddie Robinson, along with owner Ken Hicks, in the most recent edition of ICU. You can hear the full hour of Eddie's conversation about the role of barbershops in African-American culture right now at icushow.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an up-close look at Rice University's comic art teaching and study workshop's growing collection of original comic art. Stay with us as Houston Matters continues. The Comic Art Teaching and Study Workshop, also known as CATS, is an archive for original comic art and books based in the Department of Visual and Dramatic Arts at Rice University. The collection includes original comic art from several regions of the world, including Mexico, China, and Japan. 
program was recently donated original drawings of iconic American newspaper comics like Family Circus, Blondie, and Mickey Mouse and his friends. Our own William Menhivar sat down with CATS founding director Christopher Sperandio, uh, uh, who also serves as an associate professor of painting and drawing at Rice. They discussed the value that uh, Sperandio sees in preserving these original works of comic art. Originally, it started, I just wanted to acquire some original comic artwork uh, for my students to look at. I think that in learning about drawing, looking at original drawings is, is ideal. It's the best way to learn about drawing. And so um, I began collecting original comic art right at the bottom of the market, like really stuff collectors weren't very interested in, but made great teaching tools. Could you tell me about some of those pieces that you were first acquiring? I don't know if you remember um, the Archies. Well, the Archies have been in continuous print for 70 years. And uh, and so there's a lot of Archies original comic art out there. And a lot of it made by very, um, you know, we maybe think of the Archies as maybe kind of frivolous, but there was a lot of really great artists who made art for the Archies. And so I have some of that stuff. You have comics from Mexican and Russian artists as well. Can you tell me about some of those pieces you've collected? I travel quite a bit, and whenever I go somewhere new, I try to buy indigenous comics. So if I'm in uh, Berlin, there, there's a great tradition of, of Soviet-era East German comic books, and they're available for sale at flea markets, and they're not priced too terribly, and they're beautiful. So that's what I do. I, I Wherever I go, I try to find the used bookstores and the flea markets and see what kind of comic books they have. Can you describe the cultural pool comics once had on our society uh, back in the 30s and 40s? So, you know, this was out there as a major uh, medium of, of uh, entertainment. Can you describe to people, because it's not the same way anymore. Um, and I feel like comics used to have this big pool on not just children, but, but everyone. Comics drove the circulation for the Hearst newspaper. That, In fact, the, the term yellow journalism, which I'm sure you're familiar with, actually stems from a comic book character who was called the, the Yellow Kid. Uh, part of a comic strip called Hogan's Alley. So um, comics have been, since their invention, a big part of our capitalist culture. And look at today, these Marvel movies based on comic books that are maybe 70 years old, and they pull down trillions of dollars. And not just enter enter entertainment, they're political cartoons as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the lectures I give to my students is about the nature of political cartooning and how many political cartoonists are in jail uh, or executed and uh, it's it's pretty it's a pretty impactful medium not only monetarily but also like socially and politically in fact there's a controversy today about the um, Shah of Iran and the Ayatollah in Charlie Hebdo they're they're causing controversy again can you tell us about this donation that you just received of, uh, of original comics, original layouts and drawings of a uh, family circus, a Blondie and Mickey Mouse? So are these, is this Mickey Mouse comic drawn by Walt Disney? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> I think Walt was pretty busy um, with his uh, Disneyland and, and uh, Disney World by this point. Um, no, they're terrific pieces. It's, uh, this, it's a collection of 14 pieces that kind of dropped from the heaven 
for us, and we were really lucky to have them. The Blondie and Dagwood, you know, there were 12 movies made, Blondie movies made, and uh, in the 40s, they were um, they were huge hits. Uh, so it's this, you know, it's this popular culture that um, endlessly recycles, but is endlessly pertinent. Why do you feel it's important to preserve these these older comics? Well, first of all, they're beautiful drawings, and so we, we, you know, we generally want to preserve culture in any form that it takes, and in particular, um, these drawings not only have a um, have a kind of that cultural dimension of of twelve films being made based on the character, but also they just love they have lovely crisp black lines, and you can see the eraser marks where the artists change their mind and maybe move things around. Uh, they're really remarkable things to look at. And are you uh, digitizing these comics? Is there a way the public can see them maybe online? Yeah, so the, the, the collection is based here at the Woodson Research uh, Library, in, which is part of the Fondren Library at Rice. And I actually have uh, three students who are Fondren Fellows who are actually being paid uh, to do research, and and one of the things that they're doing is they are scanning all of this original art with the goal that that uh, at some point the collection can be online and people can look at these things from the comfort of their own iPhone. Oh, what are your favorite pieces in the collection? Uh, the the chick young blondie drawings are beautiful, but we've also got these. Um, one of the things that I've been buying a lot of is or find, finding is uh, Mexican comic art from the 1960s and 1970s. And Mexico had an enormous comic scene in the 1960s and 70s, which has all but disappeared now. And uh, and and this Mexican comic art is just gorgeous. Should we go give it a look? Absolutely. Let's look at it. Okay, so we're over. We have we're at a table with quite a few large comics. They're they're very large format. Uh, Could you tell us about this first one, this uh, Family Circus comic we're looking at here? Yeah. So uh, Bill Keen is the artist for Family Circus, and um, this piece uh, looks like it's a Sunday comic. Uh, so the Sunday comics were. Um, uh, much larger than the daily than the daily comics. If you're familiar with Family Circus, usually the the, the daily comics were just a circle with with uh, kind of a one-liner. But this is one of the bigger Sunday pieces. Of course, it's just in black and white. The color would have been added later by a by a different organization altogether by the printer or uh, by the syndicate that that shopped these out. These are ink. Your ink on paper and Bill Keane, uh, I don't see any mistakes in in these drawings. It, he is an expert by this point. This is from 1984. He had been at it for quite a while. I, I just the consistency too, with like just like the the shapes of the faces and just getting that right every time is just pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, look at that. That's that's the, uh, this face is identical to that face, and the line quality is really terrific as well. That thin to thick push pull, it's beautiful line work. And we have a Mickey Mouse and his friends uh, comic over here, not probably not drawn by Walt Disney, uh, but this seems to be a little. You know, I'm seeing more pencil marks, and uh, it's a little. It's not as clean as the Family Circus uh, uh, comic. 
No, and you know, actually, most comics are more like this Walt Disney piece, where um, you know the the comic artist uh, Bill Keen is working for himself with Family Circus, but a lot of comic artists are just hired guns, and they have they get paid by the page or whatever, and so yeah, they they move pretty quickly and not really worry about being perfect the first time because they can always use uh, white paint to correct. You were describing some of these Blondie comics as well. You said, how long have they been in, uh, uh, how long has Blondie been published? Well, this one that we have is from 1932. I think it started right around, I think it started in the 20s. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a, I'm not a Chick Young specialist. If your uh, listeners were here, they could see the real difference between what Dagwood looked like in the 1930s and what he looked like uh, in the 1950s. That's a tremendous difference. Yeah, um, he's kind of smoothed out a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Although Blondie looks the same. Like, look at the Blondie on this page, and then look at her there. Yeah, I wonder why they cartoonified him a little more. Yeah, it's hard to tell. You know, when you... Uh, Chick Young did this for a long, long time, and so I imagine uh, maybe even just sheer boredom of doing the same thing makes you want to change things at some point. So we've got high... High and Lois, and they'll do it every time. Uh, High and Lois, Mort Walker is uh, also kind of a rock star artist. He's uh, very beloved. And look how clean this is as well. It's just, I can see here in the socks, there's a little bit of correction that happened. Do you see that? Yeah. You have to look really, like, really in there to see any, like, potential mistakes they would have made. Yeah. But the lines are just as clean as um, Family Circus. Yeah, they're terrific. His, uh, these guys are professionals. And then here's some of the, uh, the original comic books. In addition to the comic art, like I think we sh need to look at the things that they, uh, that they become. These are the, the East German communist era comics that are so interesting to me. These comics are from the Cultural Revolution period in China. Um, and the Chinese comics are, are very interesting. They're um, beautifully made, um, and usually just one image with the text below per page is the, is the, the kind of comic that they made. Uh, this book is actually a Japanese woodblock uh, print book from the 1850s. So this is um, uh, manga before manga. Uh, and the, the kids love manga these days. Oh, they do very much. And then this is some of the um, some of the Mexican comic books. So the Mexican comics were tiny, and um, they uh, they were big too. So they had these spines on them, and then um, th there were uh, 90, 90 some odd pages to them. Uh, and really lovely. They were tiny enough you could put in your pocket, take to, take to work, and read on the bus. And then this is the original drawings for this comic. So you can see here that this drawing, which is about uh, 10 inches tall, is shrunk down to just uh, like 4 inches tall. Within the Woodson collection, we have about 300 pages of Mexican comic art. And then at home in my uh, safe, I have about... 
3,000 more pages. So yeah, so a lot of, lot of Mexican comic art. And I'm actually uh, working on a film right now about, about this artist, Julio Camarena. Uh, interviewed him last May and I'm editing the film now. What can you tell me about him? Uh, well, he was one of the highest paid artists that worked at his company. There were something like 25 publishing companies in Mexico City at that time. And um, I think he draws like an angel. I think he's, he, if he had lived in the U.S., I think that he would have been drawing for Marvel or DC. He was that good. And uh, he was one of the people affected by the sort of disappearance of the Mexican comic industry in the late 70s, early 80s. Why did it disappear? Well, um, uh, political turmoil. There was also government subsidies for paper. And then television and movies became more competitive with the industry. And so, um, yeah, 25 publishing houses. That's a lot of publishing houses. What do you hope people, not, not just your students, but people who will hopefully potentially see this online, will, will take from seeing all these, uh, this archive of older comics? Comics are quite fugitive. You know, if the, if the original wasn't saved, then, then, um, then that thing may be lost for forever. You know, I don't know if anybody saved, uh, uh, for instance, I've got these clippings over here of uh, Snuffy Smith uh, that somebody meticulously cut from the Sunday paper every day for, for years. Um, I don't know it, but those could be the only records of those particular comics. So these are... These are cultural treasures and, uh, and well worth preserving, and we're lucky as hell <laughs> to have them here at Rice University. Christopher Sperandio, he's the comic art teaching and study workshops founding director. Some of the comics he discussed with Art William and Hivar will be on display in the Fondren Library at Rice University from January 31st through the month of February. And that will do it for today's show. The Houston Matters team includes Michael Haggerty, Joshua Zinn, Troy Schultz, and William Inhivar. Jared Carroll's our technical director. On tomorrow's show, Tech's Danny Perez joins us to discuss some ongoing and planned area highway construction projects. Also, from the start of the Texas legislative session to President Biden's border visit to losing Republican candidates contesting Harris County election results, we discuss developments in politics in our regular Wednesday political roundup. I'm Craig Cohen. Join us tomorrow for the those and other Houston Matters.